The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I wish you a happy early Earth Day. Earth Day is on Thursday. In case you didn't notice, I have no idea where the month of April has gone. And I just wanted to say that I've always been of the mind that this is a day everyone should honor. Whether you're left of center or right of center, we all live here. We should all care about protecting our home. Honestly, it's the only one we've got. So plant a tree, pull a weed, or don't. Sometimes the bees eat the weeds. Do something on Thursday to just, even if you just take a moment and look out your window at something in the yard, honor this day for the earth. On today's episode, I'm happy to share my conversation with retired journalist and environmental enthusiast, Rocky Barker. Rocky is the former environmental reporter for the Idaho Statesman, where he spent decades reporting and elevating environmental issues important to the region. He spent 2017 writing a series on the Columbia River called Salmon and Energy. He also was the primary researcher for a series of editorials calling for the breaching of four Snake River dams to save salmon. And as you will hear in the episode, this um, series of editorials actually had the impact of um, about 1,500 other dams across the U.S. being removed. So influential stuff. During Rocky's 43-year career, he covered environmental issues ranging from mining in Wisconsin, acid rain in Canada, rainforest protection in Hawaii, um, fish and wildlife conservation in Russia's Far East and Africa. We talk about his backstory, how and why the dam breaching is important to the survival of salmon, and Congressman Mike Simpson's $33.5 billion plan to breach four dams on the Snake River just as that editorial recommended more than 20 years ago. And we cover so, so much more. I cannot wait for you to listen. But first, a word from one of our RepublicEN.org members, David Reber. My name is David Reber, and I'm from Utah. I'm proud to be represented by a leader like Senator Mitt Romney. He gets what's at stake for the Beehive State when it comes to climate change. And he's not afraid to take a seat at the table to talk about solutions. We need more eco-right leadership like his, people who are willing to be in the debate. Not to debate the science, because that's clear, but to talk about solutions, particularly those solutions that are aligned with our values here at home. So thank you, Senator Romney, for supporting the bipartisan energy and COVID package that passed last December. Thank you for participating in the Senate Climate Solutions Caucus. And thank you so much for being open to the idea of pricing carbon. And now my conversation with Rocky Barker. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm in conversation today with Rocky Barker. Rocky, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I 
just have to geek out for a second because I love journalism and journalists and some of our listeners have heard me say this before. My dad was a journalist early in his career and I just have mad respect for people who chase the news, report the news and so much goes into the work that you do. And so my first question is, I'm really curious, did you hit the environmental beat sort of accidentally because you were young and someone said, oh, go do this, cover this, and then you built from there? Or did you come into that bringing some experience with you? Well, that's, that's in, Chelsea, that's interesting because really I'm a child of Earth Day. Uh, literally, I'm, you know, I'm uh, uh, 67 years old and my senior year in high school was the first Earth Day in 1970. And the, uh, so I got very interested in, in the environment in general and went to college at a little place called Northland College up in Northern Wisconsin on Lake Superior. And it was just starting its new environmental studies program. So I got my degree in environmental studies after four years. And I took one class that said uh, uh, it was called environmental journalism. They were, you know, uh, all the traditional liberal arts folks were trying to find out how to be involved in this new uh, endeavor. And so environmental journalism was really journalism 101. I uh, learned, you know, the basics of uh, who, what, why, where, where, and when, and uh, went to work as a journalist at a local weekly newspaper. Uh, and I moved on to a daily, moved eventually to uh, uh, another daily and became the managing editor. And I was having my third child. I was making no money because journalism then and now never pays. Yes, I know that well. (laughs) And uh, and I answered an ad uh, in editor and publisher that said, cover Yellowstone Grizzlies, and Three Mile Island cleanup. And I said, that's for me. And I took the job in Idaho Falls, Idaho, as the environment energy reporter. And that's the rest is history. That was the beginning. That was 35 years ago, 36 years ago. And, uh, and I've been covering environment since. And that's, a, I feel like those two issues, Yellowstone and Three Mile Island, geographically they're pretty far apart but also the types of things that were happening in both those locations are very different you know that's one of the things i was so lucky you know was uh in my my education really was a good liberal arts education teaching me how to learn uh, as much but then my job puts me in rooms with nuclear physicists puts me in room with the top uh, wildlife biologist in the country and some in the world. And so I really was learning all of these issues that uh, I was covering, you know, with, uh, from the ground up with great people. I also had good bosses uh, who cared about the issue. I didn't, you know, environmental journalists had, had to kind of fight for our, uh, our issue, I, I once uh, uh, told an interviewer that uh, when you care about education, nobody gives you a hard time. But when you care about the environment, people say you're biased. And because especially in the West, the word environment was a very uh, 
polarizing word. And so, but it also meant I was lucky enough to walk in all these camps. I would walk into a bunch of nuclear scientists who were uh, melting down a reactor in the Idaho National Laboratory to try to replicate the Three Mile Island accident of 1979. And in doing so, I, uh, you know, I got to understand who these people were, what it was that mattered to them. And at the same time, I was covering the fires that burned in Yellowstone. And so I was learning wildfire science, you know, from the ground up and literally having to run for my life uh, at Old Faithful in uh, uh, 1988. Um, I got in, I got too close, too arrogant, you know, the same kind of things that, uh, you know, often happen. And uh, then I went on um, uh, in 1990s when I really started covering the salmon issue. And so that's now 31 years. Uh, It's pretty incredible. There's so much I want to say to everything that you just described to us. And so I'm going to start with, um, you know, you talked about the, the word environment maybe not being one that has a positive connotation where you are, which is in Idaho. I don't, uh, listeners heard that in the intro, but, but I don't think that we specified that. And I did bring you here to talk about salmon. So I promise we will get to that. What, why do you think that a word, the, this idea of protecting the environment, which I think of the Mountain West in general, Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, those states, as some of the most beautiful states in the U.S. with these great national parks and avid outdoors people. And if you are an outdoors person, you do care for the environment. You want to protect that which you're seeing. So why is there this knee-jerk reaction to the idea of environmental policy when the people that populate most of these states are enjoying these like great and wonderful places, special places. Well, you know, I think, I do think that it's changed from when I came in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason was in, ni- in 1970, there really was this amazing consensus in this country. And it's hard to describe for people just how polluted this country was our rivers were on fire uh, the Cayuga River in Cleveland our air pollution was so bad around LA and Chicago it looked like Beijing looks today and I've been I've been to Beijing and seen and it's it's just in, was incredible and so when we passed all of those laws remember it was Richard Nixon mm-hmm. who declared that the 1970s were going to be the environmental decade. And Nixon signed all of those laws, many of them passed uh, by Democratic majorities, in part thanks to the uh, activism of the uh, folks who uh, put on Earth Day. Um, But the fact was, it wasn't a partisan issue until it became, once you got all that, uh, the legal uh, power uh, of the environmental laws in place, you inherently had it exercising power against people who hadn't faced uh, anybody telling them what to do. And I, I, you, you can certainly understand uh, that uh, there were, here in the West, the whole anti-government feeling, uh, you know, that led to, for instance, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan being elected president. 
uh, you know, we had the sagebrush rebellion going on in those days. And so environmentalists were uh, using uh, these new laws to restrict ranchers, loggers, miners, oil men in ways they'd never been uh, touched before. And they, they were, and they actually had the power under be, now because of those laws to make those things stick. And so that, when I came in 85, that's how we were in the middle of what we call out here, the timber wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the spotted owl. Spotted owl. I was trying, I was like, there is an owl in this story. I know. Yeah. I that remember that. Yep. Spotted owl and the, uh, with grizzly bears, uh, wolves, wolves. Uh, all kinds of endangered species and, and clean water issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, logging and mining were still causing great pollution to some of the cleanest rivers we had in the country. So, uh, so the 80s was a really a time of, of, of uh, polarized environmentalism. That has changed in the 2000s. Now, if you go out west, you go almost every state, you find these collaborative groups uh, partnered like the Forest Partnership here in Idaho. Also similar over in Oregon. These are very bipartisan. They are both environmentalists. They are loggers. They are the timber industry. In the case of... uh, uh, some stewardship work here in Idaho. It's ranchers and environmentalists who are working together. The environmentalists agreed that they weren't going to try and drive the ranchers off the land. And the environment and the ranchers agreed, well, you know, it actually didn't hurt us to protect some of the land you want to protect as wilderness as long as we can still use it. Right. And they said, you can, under the law, you have the right to graze. So those kind of things have developed and uh, consensus and collaboration, you know, have really grown in the West. And it's I'm very excited about it. It's it was for me something I've been I had been pushing. I acknowledge as a journalist, I had an agenda. My agenda was to bring people together so that they can work together to find win win solutions. So let's pivot to the salmon. And I see listeners, you can't see Rocky. I can. Behind him, he has an Idaho statesman paper taped to a bookcase that has Simpson Breach for Snake River Dams. And this is in reference to the Columbia Basin Initiative, a plan by Congressman Mike Simpson, who is a, a Republican, to spend $33.5 billion or $32.5 billion with a B dollars to help kind of bring everybody together, right, on saving the Idaho salmon, which I also had never heard of because I've heard of Alaskan salmon and Atlantic salmon and farm salmon, but I'd never heard of Idaho salmon. So let's let's dig in a little bit to the salmon issue in Idaho. Well, let's start. I mean, you really have to start with the fish. Mm-hmm. And I started in 1990 uh, with a uh, visit to a place called uh, Marsh Creek up in the Sawtooth National Recreation Area, this high mountain area, this meadows, where this little stream uh, is uh, running through the middle of the meadow. And in that stream are these 
30 inch long salmon uh, that are have swam 870 miles, climbed 6,500 feet from the Pacific uh, to spawn. And I'm watching this incredible fish. Think about that journey, that gauntlet that they've run. They had run, they had go had to cross first as, as babies, after a year in the stream, they had gone down in the spring of, uh, you know, runoff. They'd been washed down through eight dams on the Snake and Columbia River. Uh, and about 50% of them are, are killed in that process, including a, a bunch that die later through uh, what they call delayed mortality. Those fish end up out in the ocean uh, they turn, uh, uh, the salmon turn uh, right and go up towards Alaska, and then they're, you know, fished for in Canada and Alaska and out in the ocean. Then they come back and they uh, make that amazing run through all those same eight dams again. And, uh, and then they get back to Idaho, they spawn and they die. It's an incredible uh you know, journey and natural story. It certainly grabbed me. And uh, a, a few years ago, just I think it was 2018, Mike Simpson, our congressman, also kind of fell for the same. Uh, uh, he went up to Marsh Creek and saw the same thing I did. But the point I'm trying to say is that that fish covers all these different ecosystems. And it's really an icon of our whole region. And, you know, for the Indian tribes, it was life. For, uh, you know, the politically, you know, when you talk about the economy, uh, in the early 19, uh, in the early 1900s, the salmon were the major uh, economics of the Northwest, canneries. And, uh, and they caught, a, they took a whole lot of them out. Uh, so that by the time the first dams were built, their numbers were already uh, dramatically uh, reduced. But from the 1930s on to 1975, they kept building dams. And all, I, there is not a person today in the science community who will say that uh, they shouldn't have built all eight of those dams between Idaho and there. Those dams, which are run by the federal government, they're U.S. Uh, uh, Corps of en Army Corps of Engineer dams. They produce power that uh, uh, the whole system is run by a government agency called the Bonneville Power Administration. Mm -hmm. And they, they market the power from those dams. But those about... Uh, uh, about 1996, people started, they'd done all these things and people started to say, scientists, uh, fisheries biologists, maybe we can't, maybe we're gonna have to start thinking about taking out some dams. And, but nobody really, we wrote an editorial, we being the Idaho statesman who I worked for, uh, I did the research but the editorial department wrote a series of editorials in 1997 calling for removal of those four dams. And uh, that has essentially begun 
a process. We were a part, essentially. Bruce Babbitt once said that those editorials were really the beginning, one of the beginnings of the river restoration movement. And we've taken out 1,500 dams nationwide since then, but none as big as the four dams on the Snake River that we're talking about, which are half of the eight dams. And they were chosen because they are the, they are run of the river dams. They don't store water. Mm -hmm. So they aren't as valuable uh, a resource. They produce about a thousand megawatts of power a year, but their real value is in capacity for the system. It's like batteries and they can, when we have a, uh, a real like where they'll happen is in the winter uh, either California or uh, the Northwest will have a shortage for like an hour to eight hours and these dams can they can rev them up for about eight hours uh, to full capacity 3,000 megawatts uh, for but that's it only about 16 hours but that's important at least for the moment We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Why this plan is so expensive, right? Because you have to, if you're removing these dams, there has to be some replacement for the power that they generate or for the benefits that accrue to either well to all the stakeholders around the issue is my under my very basic understanding right yeah you're, you're right chelsea and it, i'll say one of the things our editorial uh uh 23 24 years ago our, our series of editorials said that if you took those dams out it would be cheaper than keeping them in i still believe that oh. i believe but when you make, this is the issue of all environmental issues. When you make a transition like that, there are winners and losers. Mm-hmm. And we were unable in the last 20 years to come to any place where we could, you know, even have that discussion. It, you know, people would say, <laughs> yeah, it's cheaper to do this. No, it's not. You know, and we just we go hear up it back on climate and- change too, right? Like it's gonna, it's cheaper ultimately to start solving climate change than it is. Just look at how many natural disasters we get in the U.S. a year now from the wildfires, which you're familiar with, hurricanes in the Gulf. I mean, we. I'm gonna forget the stat now, but maybe it was in 2020, I think that we had, or 2019 that we had 16 billion dollar or more storms where we were paying a billion dollars or more in damages right that's right and so so it's 19 in uh 2019 the Anders center for public policy named after former uh interior secretary cecil anders he was also governor uh they held a conference uh salmon energy agriculture and communities and they were, they, it came after I had done a big series in 2017 uh, and after Mike Simpson had had his epiphany on Marsh Creek. And so he got up at this conference, a Republican, and 
he said, you know, people, I keep talking to people about, explain to me, uh, you know, what are you going to, what would you, what are you going to do if they uh, take those dams up? And he said, we don't even want to talk about it. And they just simply wanted to say, we're against it. It's wrong. Let's not talk. And he said, I just couldn't accept that. And I said, we really need to begin talking about the what if question. What if these dams come out? And he went down the point with everybody and said, you know, if the environmental community, they've been in court since 1994, uh, every time they've won. And every time they've won, the cost of uh, keeping the dams and, and protecting salmon has gone up and up and up. And so while it's cost $17 billion uh, just for salmon programs over the last 20 years, the, uh, we, while we've, we've built the probably the best salmon passion system in the world on these dams, but it's just not enough. And so the science in this has been uh, interesting, but he said, come on, let's start talking about what if. One of the components of his plan puts uh, his plan, right? It, it is a plan and not a bill. And, and listeners, I will link to um, Mr. Simpson's webpage, um, which does have a PowerPoint about his plan. He has a component that would call for a 35-year moratorium on lawsuits, and so I think what I'm kind of hearing you say, right, is that there are laws on the books that allow these legal maneuverings to happen and they're costly. And then any delay that we have in taking action, it then becomes more expensive once you get down to taking the action, which and we see in climate change, right? Like we are so far behind now on what we need to do. We're going to have to do more faster and that's going to cause bigger impact. So and I thought it was just really bold of him and we and I love seeing courageous leadership and and it sounds like he's somebody who came to his epiphany sort of gradually, right? And and not every epiphany is like a wake up one day and decide that you feel a certain way on an issue. And he's represented, I mean, I don't know how long Mike Simpson's represented his his area, but I'm assuming he's been around for a while. <laughs> and and so this is like accumulated knowledge and conversations he's been having with stakeholders for probably decades um, to inform his plan. Um, I was just going to note that, and I have to pay my producer five bucks because I'm going to say that I used to work on the Hill and he always gets money anytime I, I mention on the podcast. But my old boss, John Warner, had his climate epiphany in Idaho back in, um, so I started working from in 2007. So I think it was like 2006, maybe 2005. He was in Idaho for a fundraiser for a Senator who's no longer in office that you had some experience writing about. And as a young man back in the forties, John Warner, I've heard him tell this story so many times. It's a fantastic story. He wanted to join up and go to world war II. He was 16. His dad said, you got to have a man's job first. Can't just go to war. So he said he would pay a one-way ticket for Senator Warner to go anywhere in the country to get a job. And so this is in Senator Warner's words. I wanted to stick the old man for as an expensive of a train ticket as I could. The trains only went to Idaho. So he got a job for the Forest Service as a, a line jumper, I guess, or a fire jumper. 
smoke jumper. Yes, for the Forest Service. And did that for a year, made enough money to bring himself back, and then enlisted and was in the war for, I think, the last year of the war. And he just talked about how he remembers the, these forests in Idaho and how beautiful they were, majestic. And fast forward to the you know early 2000s, he goes out there for this fundraiser and calls the Forest Service and says, hey, I want to go look at my old camp that I was at when I was, you know, 16 year old <laughs> working in those woods in those forests so the forest service they roll out the maps and they plan the plot the the drive and he gets out there and the trees are gone because of like one of the bark beetles and he was just devastated right and so he asked the forest service guys like why is this and they said it doesn't get cold enough in the winter to kill the beetle off enough to protect the trees. And so that was his climate epiphany. It's great when he tells the story, especially when he talks about sticking his old man for the cost of the train ticket. But I think that it just goes to show you that when you have a, a feeling about a place or you have an attachment to a place, that that can be a real driving force. And maybe it took Mike Simpson these 24 years or whatever from when you guys had your first editorial to where we are today. And it's not a done deal, right? There's a lot of work to get people on board to this plan. And I don't know exactly what the next steps would, I guess he would have to introduce a bill and, and get some consensus behind it, but it's a starting point. Well, you know, it's you're, you're, you said exactly right. And for all of this, for me, I'm covering starting in 1990. I was I covered uh, uh, climate change. I mean, I knew about climate change because of my education all the way back in the early 70s. Uh, the greenhouse effect was taught in the first environmental class I took in 1971. But it was the Kyoto uh, uh, the Kyoto Agreement. I was covering that, you know, that and its impact uh, here in Idaho. But like, uh, you know, like uh, Senator Warner, I'm starting, I start, you know, covering fire in 1988. And, I, and the big story was, we haven't seen fire like this since 1910. And the, the thing was, is since then, uh, since 1988, we've had fire like that every year and worse. It's just been, you know, incredible. What's similar to that is that the science of this, of salmon, I just told you that about the, that uh, half the fish die uh, uh, going through the dams. That was not accepted as science until really maybe the last 10 years. There was this kind of argument, just like we've had in climate change, where there were dueling experts and uh, and of course, those some of those experts were being paid by interest groups who were trying to exploit uncertainty. That's the scientific uncertainty. That's how so much of the climate issue and the salmon issue was uh, was being driven by people who were arguing the science. What Mike Simpson did that I think is the most incredible th part of this process was Mike Simpson said, as a part of the last two years effort, he started out saying, uh, we don't need to take out those dams. We need to look and see what else we can do. 
And he looked at all the different things that are out there. What other things could we do? Well, I can tell you over the last 30 years, we've done incredible things. To, I mean, the money we've spent on fish for habitat improvement, for all of these damn uh, uh, passage facilities and uh, everything we could do. Uh, and Mike Simpson in February came to the conclusion that if we don't take those four dams out, Idaho salmon will go extinct. And I think it's important to understand he saw those salmon as Idaho resource. Now, those salmon, the Snake River is kind of an interesting place. They run, it's the largest uh, um, tributary of the Columbia. And at one time, a third of all the salmon in the Columbia came, uh, spawned in the Snake River Basin. Well, obviously, there's other things than the dams that have uh, reduced that over time. But we've got some of the most amazing habitat because central, about 22 million acres of central Idaho is roadless or wilderness. And so those streams are pristine. And, you know, he came to the conclusion that many of the fishery scientists had, had come to 20 years ago that uh, if we don't take those dams out, the fish will go extinct and all of this great habitat, which lies in the higher elevation. So it's the habitat that will possibly survive the bottleneck of climate change if we, you know, get out there and solve our climate issues. Uh, there'll be fish at the other side. But if we don't take those dams out, uh, you know, they, they may die off. Anyway, well, I've actually never been to Idaho. It's on my list of places to get to. My cousin lives there with her family, and I need to get up once we can all move about the country again. I'm well overdue in, in paying her a visit and getting to see your beautiful majestic state and um, the place that inspired my old boss and and an editorial 25 years ago that has led to a lot of other good place things happening in other places as you mentioned other dams removed around the country maybe it was you guys probably were hoping to have a little bit more direct local impact but it's got to feel good to know that your words had impact elsewhere too well I was lucky again talking about the quality of my bosses uh, you know, the Idaho Statesman is not a giant metro. It's a, you know, we're a mid-sized city. They sent me in 1999 back to Maine to watch uh, when they took out the uh, Edwards Dam on the Kennebec River. Yeah, I'm from Maine, so I remember that. And I went back five years later and saw just how incredible that changed the, the river. Now, for the Atlantic salmon... It probably isn't enough. Again, we have the problem of having so many dams uh, between the good spawning ground. Uh, but I watched that. Then in 2011, I went to uh, eastern, or I mean, western Washington in the Olympic Peninsula and saw them take out the Elwha dams. And uh, so I had the opportunity to, uh, to see in action uh, a lot of this, and I've been to Elwha since, and, and the salmon, particularly the steelhead that were, steelhead are an interesting fish. They're both uh, a sea-running fish, 
but then they are just basically rainbow trout if they can't make it to the ocean. So they were rainbow trout sitting above those dams. They take out the Elwha dams and suddenly those fish have access to the ocean like and they're a big giant steelhead again. And, wow. they, and their numbers just really took off. And uh, so it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's an incredible, I, I, I'm totally convinced uh, by that, you know, we have to do things, obviously sedimentation and things like that. But Simpson's plan pays, I mean, it, it would pay to replace all of the power uh, and capacity of those dams. It would pay for the, those dams also pr provide uh, barge traffic through locks all the way to Lewiston, Idaho. And, and so wheat in particular is, uh, is shipped on those barges. So we're gonna pay those farmers under his proposal, uh, the difference between what it would cost them uh, to ship it by rail or truck. You know, this is not just an issue of fish, fish versus environment. This is an issue of environmental justice. Yeah. And, and the Biden administration really uh, has made that a major part of their, uh, their effort. So we'll see on whether they, uh, they take it up. Right now, we're talking in April. Uh, it doesn't look like uh, Build Back Better includes this. But if Biden is serious about bipartisanship, this is a Republican who's put together this proposal in partnership with the Indian tribes of the Pacific Northwest. I think it's an incredible uh, effort and hopefully it'll get someplace. Well, I am with you. I, it gets me a little excited when I think about things happening that are so collaborative and so bipartisan. And again, listeners, I will link to Congressman Simpson's plan in our show notes and Rocky, it's just, I feel like I could talk to you all day. <laughs> this has been really wonderful. Thank you for sharing your vast knowledge and experience. And, um, you know, we'll have to have you back for some updates as, as uh, Mr. Simpson's plan hopefully moves along and, um, or to talk about something else. There could be, I'm sure you have a wealth of other things you could talk about too. Well, anytime. Chelsea, it's been fun to talk with you. And uh, keep up all the good work you guys are doing. So Price, April showers bring May flowers. Is it raining where you are? Nope. It's hot. It's sunny like it's been. Although we did have a cold snap this past weekend. It was a welcome one because the older I get, as I was telling somebody yesterday, I had a buddy over uh, playing a little cornhole outside. That uh, The older I get, as much as I used to love the hot weather, no more. I like a good touch of winter. I don't mean like Canadian Northwest winter. I mean like Southern winters. And But it is beautiful here. The pollen is out. The sneezing is out. But it is gorgeous. It is springtime here in the South. Yeah, I had to buy some allergy medicine today because that fine layer of pollen that is over everything is really getting to me. And I woke up and my eyes and my nose, everything was just like, okay, but it's so pretty. And we still have cool evenings, which I love here. I need that for sleeping. I'm with you. I don't like the 
heat of the summer, but it is nice to see all the blooms kind of popping out and all the color after kind of a drab winter. So excited for all of that. I was excited for my conversation with Rocky this week. I know you have journalism in your blood, as do I, and it was just so fascinating. You know, when you're talking to someone and they're like, well, back in 1989, <laughs> you know, they've been around for a while, right? They've seen a lot of things. They've seen change. They know people. And it is just always really interesting to talk to somebody who has such institutional knowledge. Yeah, Rocky has uh, been around for a long time. And I don't mean to date him like that, but he's written three books, award-winning journalist. Um, I believe he accompanied Bob, right, on the Snake River trip when we were out there or Bob was out there. Um, that yep, our good friend that's Terry, right. yeah, Terry Hudeberg from the University of Idaho, a professor and good friend of ours, uh, helped us lead a field trip when a member of Kathy McMorris's Rogers staff uh, was on. Um, Rocky was on that, and that's when that relationship really began um, between Republican and Rocky. So it was great to have him on and ha- hear some of his stories because he's a guy that uh, well respected journalist, knows the issues, knows the region, and when he was talking about Mike Simpson's plan and. You know, this is really workable, this is doable, and this is the right approach. That that kind of endorsement, hearing it from Rocky, is all I need to know. Exactly. And I look forward to having him back and seeing how this idea of Congressman Simpson progresses. And, of course, trying to get Congressman Mike Simpson on the show as well. If you're a listener, you're from Idaho, he's your member of Congress. Help us coax him to be on the show to talk about the Columbia Basin Initiative. Yeah, and he's a friend of Bob's when, from when Bob was in uh, you know, Congress 2.0, as Bob likes to call it, 2005-2010. Uh, Mike was a friend of Bob's then, uh, and somebody that Bob still knows uh, to this day. I don't know how, much, how often they're talking, clearly, but just because of you know different regions, obviously different uh, things that they're involved with, but we would like to have uh, Congressman Simpson on. Um, we do have on some new members uh, that I'd like to shout out real quick. Dorian A. in Illinois, Becky D. in oh, Texas. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Fun fact. Dorian is going to be next week's guest. So that's fun. We'll get to that later. I'll let you continue with your list. Yes. Dorian, uh, Don S. in Iowa, Thomas H. in New York, Karen A. in Pennsylvania. But back to Dorian next week, Chelsea. Dorian is a professor at the University of Chicago. He is going to talk about the vibe on campus there as um, it relates to people who ideologically are right of center, who are on a college campus that is more left of center. And so looking forward to bringing our listeners that conversation. All right. That's going to do it. Chelsea, remember Spotify, Apple Podcast. Um, iTunes, myriad of ways you can listen to this podcast. Download, listen, subscribe, but subscribe is the key part where you'll have it delivered to your device, computer, whatever. Each week on Tuesday is a new episode drops. We just took our spring break, so we should not have any other breaks here in the next few weeks. Uh, but Chelsea, until next week with Dorian from the University, uh, what University of Chicago, uh, we will do it again then. All right, see you then, Christ. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.